0: the 9 a.m. service asked if I was going to dance like Mick Jagger. (coughs) And I said no. (laughs) Probably because I'm sad. The Leafs lost. Badly. Yeah. Oh, I felt that love. Thank you. (laughs) We've just heard a song sung by Mick Jagger, performed by the Rolling Stones, and the chorus is, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. So, McJager, a little fun fact, Jagger at the age of 30, said that he'd rather be dead than be performing this song at the age of 45. He's now 75. <laughs> so, don't say things like that. They'll come back to haunt you. Uh, this song is famous. Many of you probably know it. Uh, Rolling Stone magazine called it the second greatest rock song of all time. Uh, it's got one of the greatest guitar riffs you'll ever hear. And on top of all that, I think it really sums up the dilemma that we face as human beings. We are all of us looking for something more, something better. And I think that line from the song really sums up our search. McJagger sings, And I try, and I try and I try. And it's this kind of I feel this kind of mounting frustration when I hear that. And we do, don't we? We try to find satisfaction in so many different things, and yet we're still not satisfied. So today we're going to consider what the Bible has to say, about what it might take to satisfy us. One thing we know for sure is that Jesus was constantly attracting people who were seeking satisfaction, whether they had questions for him, whether they were sick, whatever they were seeking, they came to him. And he still does that. Today we're going to pick up the story of Jesus in chapter 6 of John's account of his life. And I'm going to give you a little bit of, bit of background before we dive in to the passage we have for this morning. Jesus had been out traveling and healing sick people. And so a crowd had formed and was following him around. John tells us at the beginning of this chapter that the Jewish Passover was near. And John never wastes words. If John has a detail in his gospel, you can be sure, him especially among all the gospel writers, that's there for a reason. But the immediate problem was that this big crowd of people that was following Jesus was hungry. So Jesus asks Philip, where are we going to get bread to feed all these people? And Philip is kind of shocked And says to Jesus, you must be joking. We don't have that kind of money. We can't buy bread for these people. After all, didn't you tell us not to bring money for the journey? So Jesus finds five loaves and two fish. There's a little boy who actually brought some food. And he uses them to feed this massive crowd. Everyone eats and we read that there were 12 baskets of food left over. And so now everyone's talking about this, right? They go back to the villages and word spreads like wildfire. Jesus fed the multitude in the wilderness, like Moses had fed the people of Israel with manna in the desert. When Jews celebrate Passover, as Jews will again this year, starting on Friday, and as they have for millennia, they remember the history of God's faithfulness. So they look back on God's mighty deeds to rescue them, and then they look into the future with renewed hope. And it was a sign of the Messiah that when he came, he would be able to feed his people all over again, like Moses had. But this would be an even greater Moses that they were anticipating. And when the crowd finds that Jesus can do this, they want to make him king. Which ties this passage in nicely with Palm Sunday. Today's, you know, is Palm Sunday. We're not looking at the traditional Palm Sunday text, which we read as our call to worship. But there's a real connection here in terms of Passover and also in terms of people's expectations. They welcome Jesus. They want to put him on the throne. And then things end up quite differently. So we're going to pick up the story after all this has happened, but first, let's pray together. Dear God, we thank you that you offer us a source of grace and truth like no other. And as we reflect on your word today, we pray that you would fill us all over again, or maybe for the very first time this morning, with a vision of who Jesus is. Help us to just leave everything else aside. We've come here with, we've got all kinds of thoughts, preoccupations that are with us. But we ask you now, Holy Spirit, to to captivate us with the beauty of Jesus, with his truth, with the way he meets us, blesses us, provides for us. We pray all these things. In your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So we're going to read John 6, verses 25 to 51. When they found Jesus on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, you were looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. What sign, then, will you give so that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Because our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. All those the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. At this, the Jews there began to grumble, grumble, grumble. They grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, come on. Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say, I came down from heaven? Seriously. Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Did you know that we live in the richest society the world has ever seen? It's not something we often stop to think about. But we wake up, especially on a day like today, in homes that are heated more efficiently and more safely than ever before, our ancestors would have been shocked and amazed to see us turn a tap and have water come running out of it. We take all of that for granted. Our morning coffee comes from El Salvador. The orange you had with your breakfast comes from Morocco. Food is cheaper and more plentiful, and there's more diversity from around the world available to us than at any other time in history. I can talk to my little brother in Ireland, and thanks to Skype, he's on the screen, right in front of me, smiling at me. On your way to work, you pop a lozenge to battle that nagging cough you've had, and you do that without any fear of tuberculosis, which used to be a major cause of death. Your life expectancy is around 80 years. A hundred years ago, it would have been 47. And you drive off to a job, no matter what you're paid, which affords you a better standard of living than any previous generation. Life is good. Or so it might seem. But there's more to this picture, right? Levels of anxiety and depression among children and teenagers especially are today ten times higher than they were in 1950. Divorce rates have skyrocketed over that same period. One recent poll suggests that A majority of parents doubt their kids have any kind of real moral compass. They they don't know right from wrong. People generally don't like their jobs today. Even among well-paid corporate executives, a survey done a few years ago had a majority of them expressing unhappiness. And maybe the biggest challenge of all is loneliness. Loneliness is epidemic in our world, especially in our cities where the most people live. And so we find ourselves in this state of paradox, really. On the one hand, we have all this food. We've got all this advanced technology and entertainment. And yet we are still faced with so many problems. We have more choices than ever before. And yet they seem to overwhelm us, undermine us. Most of all, we are deeply unsatisfied. We feel a kind of spiritual emptiness, you could call it. And often we find ourselves trying to fill ourselves up with material things, kind of grasping at whatever we can find that eases that sense of emptiness. Here in John chapter 6, Jesus tells us that he is the only one who can fill us up. He says quite simply, and yet we'll be talking about it a bit. He says, I am the bread of life. So the crowd here knows that Jesus is special. They've heard about the feeding of the 5,000, and so they go to Jesus, and what do they do? Do they bow down and worship him? No, they say something that is very much human nature. They say, do it again. Come on. Do it again. They ask him, what sign then will you give us that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Do it again. What they're really saying is, give us another miracle. Feed us. They want proof, but Jesus doesn't do it. Sometimes I have conversations with people about the claims of Christianity. People sometimes coming from an atheist perspective, people who are skeptical, or Christians as well, who have questions about all kinds of things. And I actually really love those conversations. Miracles are a point, a bone of contention for some people. But here's the thing. Often we think that back then people were different, that they believed in mythological things, and we're modern people who can rule out miracles. But the truth is that back in the time that Jesus walked the earth, for the people who witnessed them, miracles also were not enough. You can always explain miracles away, right? Take the feeding of the 5,000, for example. Scholars often will discount that miracle by suggesting that people actually had a lot of bread and food hidden, like under them, somewhere behind them, and they were sitting on it or in their backpack. And, And what actually happened was that people were moved by the example of Jesus towards generosity, and they pulled out, you know, roast beef and like a (laughs) leg of lamb, and all of a sudden everybody was eating, and, and they just kind of passed this on. But if God is real, if we believe in God, and if we believe in God as creator, if God can create the universe, is it really such a stretch that he would be able to multiply loaves and fish? When the crowd insists With Jesus, show us the bread. Jesus says no. Instead, he says, look at me. I am the miracle. I am the bread of life, is what he says. You're looking for proof? Jesus says, it's me. It's not signs and wonders, which can actually be distractions. Jesus says, it's my whole life. It's me. If you're here this morning and you're not convinced of the truth of Christian faith, or if you're struggling to believe in one way or another, I want to encourage you to look at Christ, maybe for the first time to really look at him and hear what he's saying. Or maybe you need to go back and familiarize yourself with the story all over again. Read the New Testament, and the best place you could start might be the Gospel of John. The miracle... Is always a sign to get you to look at Jesus. We're hungry and only Jesus can fill us up. One practical way that you could put that into practice is by coming out on a Wednesday night for what remains of our community Bible study, where we really do this. We dive into scripture and we kind of immerse ourselves in all the questions, And to me, at times, it feels it really does feel like everything else kind of fades away. And it is an encounter with Jesus and everyone's leaning in. And if you haven't done it, you know, whether you come out this time or the next time, uh, I'd encourage you to do that. So Jesus takes the questions that people bring for him. He doesn't dismiss them. He redirects them. He wants us to go deeper like the good shepherd he is. And we're going to reflect on that more next Sunday on Easter Sunday. Jesus leads us beyond asking the obvious question out of self-interest, which is, what can you do for me, Jesus? He leads us to the big question that takes us deeper. Who do you think I am? Jesus compares himself and this bread of life to the manna the Israelites ate when Moses was their leader. Now, manna left you hungry for more the next day. But Jesus offers a contrast, and he says, with me it's different. He says, I can do so much more for you than that. I am going to give you living bread, bread that satisfies for a lifetime, for eternity. That is where our hunger leads us. So think with me about what kinds of hunger there are. Obviously bread, this is the image that Jesus is using, but what else are we hungry for? Significance, absolutely. Money. Uh, yep. We want more money, don't we? Knowledge. Knowledge. Some of you in university are familiar with that one. Hungry for love, absolutely. What other appetites, what other hungers do we have? Baloney? Baloney?
1: Belonging, thank
0: you. <laughs> Baloney. bread and Baloney, they go together. Like we absolutely—we want—we want to belong, and you know, many of us I think feel like we're adrift in exile. So belonging is huge for us, being part of a community and relationship with people. So we have all these kinds of hunger. I love the way that Blaise Pascal, the 17th century French mathematician and physicist and theologian, I love it when those things go together, I love the way Pascal puts this in his book with fragments of thoughts. The book is called Thoughts, and um, if you enjoy C.S. Lewis, at some point you might want to pick up Pascal, because C.S. Lewis gets a lot of his thinking from Pascal, and he writes, Pascal writes, What else does our craving and our helplessness tell us but that man was once truly happy and all that remains is a trace, an emptiness within us? This we try in vain to fill with everything around us, though nothing can help, since this infinite abyss can only be filled by God himself. This infinite abyss can only be filled by God himself. So you think of those hungers that you have for all kinds of things, physical things, but also emotional, spiritual things, as tapping in to this trace, as Pascal puts it, this emptiness that points back to a time when we were truly happy, to an origin for us where There was not the brokenness, the sadness, the suffering that we see in the world. We've got a deep hunger in us, deeper than hunger for food, deeper than hunger for relationships. And anything we try to fill that emptiness with, whether it's family, whether it's relationships, good things. Success of one kind or another, money, some of the things we've already talked about, the approval of people. It's never going to satisfy us, the Bible says. Now, the Rolling Stones, I think, do a pretty good job of summing up our frustration, right? And we try and we try and we try, but we can't get no satisfaction. We can't get it not through our own planning, our own efforts, our own daydreaming about those things that we think if we had them would fulfill us. When they ask Jesus, what must we do? When they say to him, what do we need to do to do the works of God? They're asking for a job, right? They're asking for a list of things they can check off. They're asking for it to be easy, for it to be on the surface, really And what Jesus says to them must have startled them and, I'm guessing, even frustrated them. Jesus responds by saying, believe in me. That's what you have to do. We sang that song, Giver of Life, earlier, and it's such a great pairing with this passage and such an amazing reminder that one of the deepest hungers we feel is for life. And we live in the shadow of death all the time. Whenever I do a funeral service, in the sermon, the, the meditation, I, I always make the point that death is not natural. And a few months ago, I was doing a funeral for someone up at St. Andrews Fergus, a church that I've been helping out with, and I, I did that again. I said that, you know, you'll hear in our world people say death is natural. You just need to accept it. Why fight it? But the Bible says something quite different. The Bible says death is wrong. And afterwards, over funeral sandwiches, you know those sandwiches, they're so good. I mean, it's, it's, can you get them somewhere? Like other, the little, Egg salad sandwiches and like there's that ham thing, mushy ham. (laughs) So good. This young woman came up to me and she was related to the person who had died. And uh, she said to me that she felt that same unnaturalness about death. And she said that she had the sadness, not just because of the death, of, I think it was her great aunt, but a general sadness in her life, a sadness and a loneliness. And she said to me, how can I get beyond that? How can I find hope in this time of grief, but also for my whole life? And I was, I dropped my egg salad sandwich, I think, because uh, it was a remarkable conversation. And, And so I said to her that if she believes in God, how does God show himself to us? Is God just distant and doesn't really care? And I invited her to look at what Jesus says about who God is and who he is. And and I preached from John 14, and, and she said that she wanted the hope that I was talking about, That Jesus offers us. And I was able to pray with her right there in the funeral home and it was, it was amazing. I mean, if you've been to funerals, and I hope you have because, you know, we just, we hide death away, right? We pretend it's not happening. We fill our lives with the pretense that we're going to live forever and we're not. And then we aren't ready for death and our whole culture is stunted and adolescent because of that. But if you go to a funeral, if you go to a Christian funeral, it's a completely different experience from whether you, if you go to a funeral where there is no faith. And it's, there is just a darkness and a heaviness and a desperation to get out of the room in the latter case. But in a funeral where Christ is people's hope and where we believe that Jesus offers us the bread of life, eternal life, and that his Father will raise up the ones he has drawn to himself, it's a completely different picture. So having described himself as the bread of life, Jesus then urges us to eat that bread. I mean, it was implicit all along, right? If you call yourself bread, you're suggesting that this might be something to eat. We eat bread. But then he comes out directly and urges us to eat the bread. We didn't read that far. It was a long passage. I'd encourage you to read the whole of John chapter 6 at some point this week. But in verse 53, Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. And He's saying this is a matter of life and death. Eating isn't something we can ignore, right? Either in the material or the spiritual realm. If you don't eat after a certain amount of time, you will die. And so Jesus presses home the need for a response. What does he mean by eating this bread? Well, beyond the first response of faith, of of believing in him, I think he's challenging us to be his disciples, to see our life with Jesus as a daily response of eating and feeding. And we're fed by Jesus in all sorts of ways, and they're practical things. We're fed by the sacramental life of the church. Jesus is referring here John is reflecting on the early Christian practice of the Eucharist, of communion, of the Lord's Supper, whatever you want to call it. And so through the sacraments, through communion and through baptism, we receive God's grace in an extraordinary way. We're also fed by God's words of life through a constant process of nourishment as we gather for worship on Sunday mornings, as we hear God's word preached, also We're nourished through our involvement in Christian community. This is not enough. We have small groups in which we build relationships, where we bear with one another, where we also bear who we actually are, where we get to the point in relationships where we can trust each other enough to no longer pretend that everything is okay. And then we pray out of that knowledge of one another. And we go back to scripture to understand how it all fits together where God is calling us. In the end, we have life only as we eat. We have strength only as we feed on the one who is the bread of life. So if you're here this morning and you're feeling a level of dissatisfaction in your life, if you are frustrated, if you are anxious, then my word of encouragement to you is feed on him. Dig into his word. Remind yourself of the stories. Like the Jews at Passover, remember what God has told us about himself. And then also step into Christian community in a new way. Build those relationships and you will be nourished. All of us have a spiritual hunger. Jesus tells us not to work for food that spoils. Once in a while, my kids don't eat their lunch and then... Some time passes with their lunch in their school bag. Sometimes it's days. Sometimes they find the craziest places to hide the food in the the, the backpack. Sometimes it's weeks. And when you find it after weeks, you know, slices of cucumber look entirely different. (laughs) Same thing with bologna. Bologna, I don't know what they put in bologna. It lasts for a while, but, but not indefinitely. Food that spoils, rots away. It comes to an end. But food that endures to eternal life is what Jesus invites us into. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. In verses 34 to 40, he says, I, me, or mine 17 times. Normally, we'd call that conceited. But Jesus is offering us something that no one else can. He's giving life and hope to the world. It's about him. This is centered on Christ, or it has no center at all. And yet, this is also where he starts to drive people away. I mean, if if Jesus had said, I have the bread of life, that would have been fine, I think. But he says, I am the bread of life. There's something about having the bread of life and going to the person who can give it to you that's easier. You can control it then. You can do what you want with it. And so the people grumble. They go from wanting to make him king to rejecting him. Sounds like Palm Sunday, doesn't it? They shouted their hosannas, and then only days later they crucified Jesus. And we're heading into that dark, darkness this week. We have our Good Friday service on Friday at 10 a.m., and I'd invite you to join us for that. The prayer room you've already heard about is open as of Thursday morning until Easter Sunday. Jesus is bread that fills us up a certain way. And the people who reject him, the story of his entering Jerusalem and the crowds turning on him, reminds us of why he came. So, Russell, I love that you always sit in the front seat. Some bread. Let's see what Russell does when I give him the bread. So what just happened? Something very ordinary, right? But how did that bread change? You can keep eating it. Don't don't be shy. Is there anything different about the bread now? exactly the same as it was when it was at the front. How has it changed? It was given and it was broken. Absolutely. It was given and it was broken. For bread to be eaten it must be torn into pieces. And so by using the image of bread Jesus is saying he's prepared to be given and to be broken for us like bread, which if it stays intact, cannot be eaten, and we would starve. But Jesus promises that he will give us life, that in his brokenness, in his sacrifice for us at the cross, how he was torn into pieces for our sake, out of love for us, Jesus says, I am also the bread that is being broken for you. You are hungry and empty, and I can fill you up only as I give myself for you. And we say this when we celebrate communion, don't we? When everyone has the bread, we say, this is his body broken for us. And then when communion ends, we are sent out to break bread with one another, to share the bread we have. There are 12 baskets left over. So where are you in this story? At the end of chapter 6 of John, a lot of people leave Jesus, including many disciples. But Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. Maybe you're a little confused, like Peter. You know that you're a Christian and you have faith in Jesus, but you're wondering what comes next. You're wondering how you can grow in your faith. Or maybe you're like the boy who gave up his lunch and who would never have thought that Jesus could use his unimpressive barley loaves. But you're here because Jesus offers a life that no one else can, and you know it. Maybe you're hungry today. You're lonely. You can relate to the sadness we've been talking about, the emptiness. Or it's possible you don't really care about this stuff, that you're here because someone brought you, or you're just at a point with your faith where it doesn't feel real. Whatever the case, Jesus is asking you to make him your life. That is the salvation he offers. Don't point to your life. Point to him. And if you do that now, You will pass from death to life, he promises. He says, feed on me, make me your life. What does God require of us? To believe in the one he has sent, to trust in Jesus, to surrender our ambitions, our hopes, our plans to the one who promises to satisfy us completely, to meet all of our needs, even to lead us into eternal life. I am the bread of life, says Jesus. Come to me and I will fill you up. Amen. I'm going to invite you, as we pray a prayer of response, to, to do something simple with your hands. There are rhythms to worship. There's a weekly rhythm we gather on Sunday. There are ways we do things. We, we have Holy Week, Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Easter, once a year. Something you might want to consider practicing is When we pray or when we worship on a Sunday morning, we all know that clenched fists say something, right? Open hands say something different. And when we open our hands, it's like a signal from our body, even if we're not feeling it in our mind and our heart, to open up to God's goodness. So, But today in particular, there's still some bread left, isn't there? As we open our hands, I want you to think about Jesus himself offering you good food, offering you bread that leads to eternal life. And who among us can wrap our heads around that? But to trust that Jesus is who he says he is, that he has conquered the grave, that he can forgive our sins, that he can make us new and whole again, how sweet is that? So if you would feel comfortable doing that, I invite you to open your hands. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you that even though we are skeptical people, even though we prefer to do it ourselves, to make money, to buy food, to arrange our lives, to plan, to get the things we want, we know that we can't get what we truly need. We know that ultimate goodness is not within our control. We know that things spoil and come to an end. But with you, as we hear the water, there is an unending stream of grace and beauty and goodness. So Lord, we come confessing our own inadequacy. We're here today to acknowledge That We are ultimately helpless, though we try to hide it. And with open hands, empty hands, we ask you to meet our need. We're hungry in different ways this morning. Only you can truly satisfy. Thank you, Jesus, for coming to love us, for going to the cross for us, for your resurrection, for the hope of eternal life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.